You know, the Puritan writers spoke about the valley of vision, and it's in the valley of our hard times and suffering that we often get a greater vision of who God is. And we are starting a new series today from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and I've titled the whole series, When Times Get Tough. We're talking about the difficult times. How many of you know that life is not always easy? We live in a Genesis 3 world. It's a fallen world. And we all have hardships, disappointments, sickness, weakness, misunderstandings, fractured relationships, difficulties. As I pastor a congregation, I am with people in their times of bereavement, their grieving over wayward sons and daughters, the various afflictions, the stress of unemployment, the pressure of marital problems. Life gets tough. The Bible teaches us that. You've heard little slogans, when things go tough, the tough get going, or whatever it may be. But we know that God has a plan to use our sufferings. And when times get tough, we know there is a God who is able to sustain us. First, let me make it clear that in this life, we do have afflictions. The oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, chapter 5, verse 7 says, for a man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Problems are inevitable in life. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. We also understand that when the church was born and the gospel went forth, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, they wanted to do follow-up discipleship with the new believers. And in Acts chapter 14, we see how there was a need to strengthen them. In verse 21, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, this was something that they were to be schooled in. Were you told when you became a Christian, when you, your first discipleship session, that it is through many trials and tribulations that you must inherit the kingdom of God? It's not what we want to hear, but it's something that we do need to hear. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus said, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What he means by this is that if you want to go to hell, you do nothing. You just stay where you're go- on the road you're going. The, 
Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go that way. But to enter the kingdom of God means that you have to make a choice, that you turn to Christ and you follow him. And you realize it's a dangerous journey, a road often vexed, stretching from this life into the next. Constant distractions and words of deceit, beware of wolves who clothe themselves as sheep. This is what the apostles warn us of. So our overarching theme as we go to 2 Corinthians is that there are tough times and we are to be fortified for those times. So it's a book that's not often preached on. You will find that 2 Corinthians is not commonly taught. In fact, uh, some preachers find it difficult to outline. I've labored over it, and I believe I've come up with something that will be very relevant for us. But it starts with this wonderful truth, and it is a fact. God has made himself known through the word, and this is what he says about himself, that he is a God of all comfort. He has the monopoly on comfort. He is the source of all comfort. And we're going to learn about that this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 1, if you would join me in reading the scriptures. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers in our comfort. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the privilege of being here with our brothers and sisters. We pray that we would have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. We pray that we would be uh, attentive to the correction, to the guidance, receptive to the wisdom that you give. And we do pray also, Lord, that you would give each one of us a fresh appreciation of who you are and the salvation that we have through Christ Jesus. And we pray if there's anyone listening here today who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would make your work of salvation known and that they would see the beauty, the perfection, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's work on the cross to bring them from death to life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. William Cowper, or Cooper as it's pronounced, who wrote many hymns, uh, he talked about trials as being a time of the f- a frowning providence. St. John of the Cross spoke about the dark night of the soul. The Apostle Paul speaks about his own life being one where he is pressed on every side with all kinds of pressures, afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the suffering, the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So he knew about sufferings. He knows what he's talking about. In fact, he says that his life ambition is that he might get to know God better. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. And recently you heard me teach about that, that his desire was that he would know Christ in his present moment in time-space history, as well as he will in the future when he is in his resurrection body face-to-face with Jesus in his kingdom. And that's our goal. We want to grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is. And we want people to see Jesus in us. So uh, this is how we do grow. We grow through the discipline of our sufferings. And the early church was introduced immediately after they got saved to the doctrine of suffering. How are we to suffer? Before we can understand this book, 2 Corinthians, it's important that I review a little bit of the history We've spent a good long time in 1 Corinthians, so you know a little bit about Corinth. But I want to again emphasize that the Apostle Paul, he wasn't haphazard in the way that he evangelized. He was very strategic. He went to Corinth because Corinth was a place that would influence the rest of the world. It stood at the crossroads in the Mediterranean world. It was the it was the way you would travel from the east to the west. If you wanted to go to Rome, let's say from uh, Asia Minor or Israel, you would go through the Aegean Sea and you would come to this little isthmus. You see it between Athens and Corinth, that little neck that separates the mainland of Greece from the Peloponnesian uh, Peninsula at the bottom. And we see that Corinth is the capital of the Roman province Achaia. And as Athens was known as a philosophic uh, cultural center, we see Corinth as a commercial center. It it was really at the crossroads of the world there, the north-south corridor from Greece to the peninsula, and then you have the east-west travel that went through there. And uh, it was known for its debauchery. Remember, the word Corinthianize was just a a euphemism for fornication. It was sort of the Las Vegas of uh, of the world at that time. 
when Ray Steadman of, uh, was preaching this in California, he would call it first and second Californians instead of first and second uh, Corinthians. But Paul planted the church between 49 and 50 AD. And at that time, it was still a relatively new city. It had been an ancient city, but then it was destroyed in 146 BC by the Romans, and it remained uninhabited for 100 years until Julius Caesar rebuilt it. And then it became the third most important city in the world at that time, next to Rome and Alexandra. And it had uh, a theater that was well-known, an amphitheater that uh, held up to 18,000 people. I wonder how much it cost to rent that one. And uh, it had a concert hall for 3,000. The Isthmian Games were there. It was second only to the Olympics. It was known for travel, tourism, sex, religious pluralism. Significantly, Nero, who never visited Athens, would often go to Corinth. Uh, He liked the Corinthian crowd. And the besetting sins of this particular populace were they were given to pride, particularly about their culture, their superior wisdom, They were very defensive of their immorality. And we see how Paul had a difficult time getting these people free from the worldly influence of their city. It's very relevant for us today because it's one thing for us to be saved from this corrupt world system and to get us out of the world. It's another thing to get the world out of us. You know, we need to be a lifeboat in the world. We're in the world, but not of it. And you know what happens if you get too much of the ocean into the lifeboat. The lifeboat sinks. And so we need to be separate, but also useful in the world in bringing rescue to those that are perishing. So we see how Corinth had a role to play. But Paul, in his mission to disciple the Corinthians, found it hard going. And there's a whole series of events that have taken place. We learned about the Corinthian correspondence, but I'm going to review it. Although we are going to be starting 2 Corinthians, it really isn't the second letter. It's the fourth letter that uh, Paul wrote. Because you remember when we read 1 Corinthians, Paul is referring to having written a letter before that. And, And that's a missing letter. And in that letter, he calls for the Corinthians to uh, separate themselves from the immorality that was going on in their town. And he particularly uh, brought their attention to a man who was uh, shacking up with his uh, father's wife, Uh, whether stepmother, we don't know what the actual relationships were, or second or third wife. Again, it was so confusing in that immoral culture. So in verse 9 of chapter 5, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world 
or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So he then writes what we have just studied, 1 Corinthians. We'll call that letter B. The missing letter is uh, called letter A. The second letter, or our 1 Corinthians, is letter B. And that was written in 53 or 54 AD, about three years after he founded the church. And as we know, he corrected many of the problems in that uh, area. They're taking each other to court. They're getting drunk at the agape uh, feast. They're uh, being respecters of persons. They're being show-offs in their exercise of spiritual gifts. They're party spirits. They're, uh, it was all about themselves, really. And so he preached about the cross, the need for a cruciform lifestyle. In other words, where we reckon ourselves dead, we kill sin. We know that we are no longer in Adam subject to the rule of sin. But now, having been crucified with Christ, we're new creatures. And so we're to live that way and pursue holiness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, after that letter, Paul sent Timothy to deal with further need of correction. But Timothy was a little shy. He didn't really have the intestinal fortitude to stand up to the false teachers. And there were false apostles who basically were self-appointed, and they were the ones who were saying, you know, Paul's got it too wrong. You don't need to be separate from the world. You don't need a new life. You know, Christ is all right in your life, but he can be your mascot. He can be your personal coach. He can be your CEO, but he doesn't have to be your life. You know, they were compromising the gospel. They were reversing the teaching of the cross. And they were championing the worldly values of the Corinthians. So because that didn't work out with Timothy's correction, Paul says, I'm going to come myself. And he makes what he refers to as a painful visit. He himself has a little regret about maybe he got a little hot under the collar. I don't know. I wasn't there. But 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 uh, tells us that he saw this as uh, a difficult time. He says, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. And he gave some strong warnings. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, he says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. So Paul left after this visit very wounded and devastated. You know, sometimes we have this idea that you know, the apostles are just sort of so tough-skinned that they can take all kinds of rejection and abuse. But no, in this letter, you will find out that the apostle Paul is just like you. He's a man of flesh and blood. He's not a cardboard apostle, you know, just that, that you can just sort of stick up on the wall as being an example of, uh, of someone who never struggles. No, he had personal struggles. And this is the most autobiographical book in the Bible of a servant of Christ. And I think that's one reason why pe- people have difficulty preaching through it, because it's sometimes painful. It, it really strikes pretty close to home. It's an important letter. And 
we see that after this painful visit, he sends Titus. Now, Titus he even sounds a bit like a, a mongrel, doesn't he, Titus? He's a fighter. He's got, he's, he can stand up to the false teachers. And so he goes with a, a new letter, a severe letter. And interestingly enough, that one is missing too. So letter three, or we'll call it letter C, is missing. And it's a letter that calls for repentance, and particularly that they're uh, giving in to the false teachers. And the good news is that they did repent of some of their sins. However, there still were the lingering false teachers. And these false teachers, as we will learn in 2 Corinthians, were teaching about another Jesus, another spirit, and uh, this would be a, a different gospel. And we read about that today, don't we? we? And we don't just read about it, we hear about it. Very often, people preaching in the name of Christianity, something that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he exposes that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, he says, Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, speaking about that harsh letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. When I read this, I think like, wow, he's a lot like us, you know, should I have sent that letter? Should I have written that email? You know, you just wonder sometimes, should I have actually said that? You know, and he, he has a little to and fro with his own conscience about dealing with this. He wants to deal with conflict in the right way. And don't you want to do that? Don't you want wisdom for relationships? Well, here he has a little bit of a struggle. He says, this was a hard letter and I had misgivings about sending it. But now that I've learned that it was productive, I'm really glad that I sent it. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this book, wrote, quote, nowhere is Paul's heart so torn and exposed as in this letter. 2 Corinthians bears a fierce tone of injured love, of paradoxically wounded, relentless affection. And now we come to letter D. It's this letter we will be studying, 2 Corinthians, written in 55 or 56 AD. We're not somewhere about that, about just over a year after his previous letter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, we realize that he's defending once again his apostleship because there were those still at Corinth who were saying, Paul does not have the right message. He's got a different Jesus. He's got a different spirit and a different gospel. And Paul is, is basically commending himself. And we'll learn about this. He did this in the last letter, but he has to defend himself. And he doesn't really like doing that, but he's saying it's for your sake I'm defending myself myself. It's, it's for the building up of the church. And that's so important for us to realize. God has given us the authority of his word. What is written in the New Testament and the Old Testament, all scripture is profitable and it's all spirit breathed. And so we, we listen to the word, we read the word, revere the word because it's God's self-disclosure. God is telling us about himself. And so the Apostle Paul is the real deal. And he is 
he is the one that has been appointed. Now, we know there are not apostles today, but there were apostles that were appointed by God in the early church. And remember, they had to see the risen Christ. And the apostle Paul, as we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, he was one who was born, as it were, uh, in an untimely way because he was not one of the, the 12 that saw him on, uh, before the cross that ministered for three years and then with him for three years and then saw him crucified and resurrected. He was a persecutor of the church and he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus when he was out to get permission to do further damage to the church. And then the Lord called him and commissioned him to be a preacher to the Gentiles and an apostle to the church. And notice what he says about his authority in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. He says, For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 19, all this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So the authority that he has is not for him, but it's for their benefit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10, for this reason, I am writing these things while absent so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. It's been said that anyone who wants to be a pastor should study 2 Corinthians. It is a good reality check. And you know, in the church, I think every elder should understand that, you know, it's going to be tough. You should, every elder should grasp hold of that. And as we do not have apostles today, we do have pastors and teachers we do have elders, and they are given delegated authority. And that authority is not to destroy you. It's not to bother you or pester you. That authority is for your building up. And it would do you well to respect the authority of those that have been given delegated authority in the local church. So he starts the letter by announcing his apostleship, his associate, and the audience. This is very telling. He's, he's starting his letter, as most people did, by saying, this is who I am. But notice he gives us a little bit more than what most people would say. Most would say, Paul, to the Corinthians. But he says, no, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He's not a self-appointed apostle like the false teachers of his day, but he is commissioned by God for the work of building up the church. He is an eyewitness of the risen Christ, appointed by Christ. And then he has with him his associate, Timothy, and he brings this out. He says, I'm not a lone ranger. I'm not a person who's just sort of operating in independence. I'm part of a team. And remember, Timothy was with me when I planted the church at Corinth. Timothy has visited you. You know him well. 
and he is going to back up everything that I'm telling you here. We're speaking as one, though we are two. And he calls Timothy not his, his underling. <laughs> he calls Timothy his brother. We are family. And this is so important for us to realize that in the church of God, we have been made brothers and sisters, and we're all on the same team. Amen? Amen. And then he talks about his audience. Who's he talking to? He's saying, I'm talking to the church of God. The church is not your club. It's not your 501c organization. It is not something that you are in charge of. It's God's church. And it is a local expression of the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of the church. Not the apostles, not the elders. It's Christ who is the head of the church. It's the church of God, which is at Corinth. You notice what always comes first whenever he addresses people? He doesn't say, you'll find this is in all the epistles. It's always, the, it's, it's the church that is in Christ before it's in Corinth. So what's your primary address? Sometimes you, you have to fill out a form on the internet. You know, what's your address number one? In Christ, number two, wherever your address is. But that's where I'm living. I'm living in Christ. What about you? Are you living in Christ? Is that your, address, your home address? And then with all the saints. So, hey, Corinth, you're not the only pebble on the beach. You're not the only church. New Life Community Church in Concord, you're not the only ones. You're part of something bigger than yourselves. It's a church of God. And there are saints all over the place. Isn't it wonderful to consider even this morning that there are saints all over the world praising the name of Jesus? Even in our, our community, there are other places where people call upon the name of the Lord with a pure conscience, and we can bless those churches wherever they are preaching Christ crucified. And then he says, I'm going to be defending that I am the real deal here, and part of my proof is your salvation and also my sufferings. This is why he's going to talk about the God of all comfort in chapter 1. It's not like he's taking little topics. No, he's saying, I am wanting you to know that the fact that I have endured these sufferings prove that I am the real deal. And he says, the very fact that you are saved, that you heard the gospel when Timothy and I came to preach uh, years ago, and that you are now walking in Christ, should give you some clue that I am not a fraud. So he presents their salvation and his sufferings as commendations of his authenticity as a servant of Christ. He's the real deal. He says, when, uh, you remember these, these false apostles, uh, they were great orators and they had big crowds and people paid money to hear them. And they would, they would discount Paul. He said, Paul can't be the real deal because he doesn't charge any money. And he was just being really counterculture because they were really into their little success seminars that they would charge an arm and a leg for and the false apostles. And, and, and uh, Paul wanted nothing to do with that. That's why he didn't take offerings at Corinth and he had other churches support him there. And he said, uh, these false apostles, they all have their credentials and everybody giving them accolades. It's just sort of like on, the, on books today. You have all the people who praise them and you got pages and pages in the forward of people saying, what a great book this is. You know, some, it really goes over the top sometimes. Just get me to the book, you know. It's like, but everybody's, you know, tooting their own horn here. So he says, you are our letter. 
You are our letter of recommendation. The very fact that you're saved shows that, you, that this is the real gospel. This is the real Jesus. And this is the real Holy Spirit that has regenerated you. And it's written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tables of human hearts. Think about that. Your changed life is a written recommendation. Written on your hearts is a recommendation that Jesus is real, Jesus is alive, and the the Holy Spirit has done the work. But not only is our changed life uh, a recommendation, but also our afflictions. Our afflictions basically show something about our life. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Christ is put on display in our hardships. And so he says concerning himself, in everything we are commending ourselves as servants of God in what? In much endurance, in afflictions in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors. And he goes on. And Paul writes, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If nobody is irritated by the fact that you are born with a new life, something is wrong. In other words, we need to be the salt and light in the world. And, you know, salt, it is a healing factor, but it also can irritate some people. And it's counterculture. And we need to be standing up as Christians with the distinctiveness of of our identity in Christ and not be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. But with the gospel will come Suffering. But Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you. Blessed are you if you are persecuted and reviled for my name's sake. He says, Woe unto you if all men speak well of you. You don't often hear about that. So then he gives a worshipful greeting Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to skip over this either. Now, this is a very important greeting. He took what was a common Greek greeting. In the marketplace in Corinth, people would always greet each other with a karin, is what they would say. He changes it from karin, which is a welcome greeting, how are you doing, how are you, to charis, which means grace, unmerited favor. You see, not karin, which is the normal Greek welcome. And then he says, peace. Now, in the Hebrew culture, When people greet each other, what do they say? Shalom, shalom, peace be with you, wholeness, well-being. Well, he takes the Greek version of that, irene, and he says heart peace. We've got peace because we have grace. We have the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. He's given us forgiveness. He's given us eternal life. He's given us a new family. He's given us hope. He's given us joy. All of this is by grace, and it gives us peace of mind, peace of heart. And so he takes the counterpart to the Hebrew greeting, shalom, and he wonderfully puts together. He unites the Greek, the Gentile, and the Jew with this Christian greeting. And I think it's a good one. We can do it from now, 
now on, every now and then. Grace and peace be with you. A lot of times people would say, peace be with you. But I love grace and peace be with you. And then he talks about the source of all comfort. And it's a praiseworthy comfort. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. The word blessed is, we get the word eulogize from it. In other words, we can just be worshiping the Lord and praising him because he's made himself known to us. How has he made himself known to us? He's made himself known to us as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. And this word mercies here, uh, oiktimos in Greek, is translated only five times in the New Testament, but it speaks of being uh, compassionate, our heart move with pity, and it uh, leads on to the God of all comfort. So he's being praised for his self-disclosure as the God of all comfort. Secondly, we learn that it's a paternal comfort. It's the comfort of God the Father. Now, in verse 3, he says he's the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. The word comfort does not mean merely to offer sympathy, but it comes from the word paraklesos. Those of you may recognize that the word we have for the Holy Spirit is a comforter or the paraclete. And para means alongside, and cleate means called. It comes from kaleo, which means to call. He's called alongside to strengthen. And you get the Latin comfort with uh, strength. It's to fortify. So we see that God saying, when you have afflictions, I am there with you in the trial to fortify you. Second Corinthians is a very fortifying epistle. You're going to love it. And we, are, we affirm and we'll learn how to affirm God's presence in the midst of the storm. Jesus doesn't say, and the Lord doesn't say, I'm going to keep you from the storms. He's saying, I'm going to be with you in the storms. And in the storms, you will be fortified. And in, you will find that the sun will come out at the end of the storm. Literally, you'll see that Jesus, the son of God, is being glorified as you are being strengthened in the trial. Jesus gave us a wonderful picture of the compassionate father of mercies in the parable of the prodigal sons. And I say sons because although there was the, there was the younger brother who asked for the inheritance ahead of time and uh, splurged it and squandered, the word prodigal means to be extravagant. He just went, went out and was profligate in the way he was spending his uh, father's inheritance, and he went out and uh, ended up in poverty, eating as those who were working as farmhands the food that was fit for the pigs in in the barn. And he said, this is not the way to live. And he changes his mind. He repents, and he, he, he prepares a little speech 
that he says, I'm going to go to my father's house and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Receive me as one of your hired workers. And you know, he never gets to, get, he never gets to finish his speech. He never says, just receive me as a hired hand in your farm because I, I, that's much better than what I'm getting right now. Instead, the father interrupts him. Notice in verse 20 of Luke chapter 15, so he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. This is the heart of our comforting father. He loves us. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, starting the New Testament part of the book of Isaiah. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says your God. Isaiah 51, 3, indeed the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness he will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. Isaiah 51 verse 12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? Isaiah 66 verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You will be comforted in Jerusalem. You know, Isaiah chapter 49 verse 15 talks about the father's love and says it's like a mother's love too. So we see the maternal and paternal and parental love of God towards us in Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. In other words, even human parents fail and even natural sympathies and affections uh, fall short and may die off. But we've been singing about an everlasting love with an everlasting comfort. And so the Lord says, behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He doesn't say I've inscribed your name. He says, I've inscribed you, everything about you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So we have the comfort of the father. He's a benevolent, loving father. But what does this mean when we read the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some people get confused about this, and particularly there'll be some Jehovah Witnesses who will try to to get you confused and say, well, you see, the Father is the God of Jesus, so Jesus is not God. But what does it mean? This accolade or appellation This name, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, does not take away Jesus' deity. It doesn't make Jesus inferior to the Father, nor does it deny his deity. In John chapter 5, verse 18, you remember the reason why uh, Jesus 
took the, in the incarnation, you see, he takes the subordinate role of a suffering servant. He humbles himself, taking the form of a servant, and he's obedient unto uh, death in Philippians chapter 2. In John chapter 5, he says, for this reason, therefore, Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In other words, Jesus was making the very fact that he was talking about God this way, claiming that he was the son of God, was making himself equal with God. You know, this is so different from the pagan's view of gods. Gods are always uh, lustful, unpredictable. And here we have a revelation of God as a loving father. And Jesus, he refers to God the Father in such a way that he, we know he can be trusted. He committed himself to the Father. He called God his own Father. There was a book written by a Muslim woman, Bilquis Sheik, uh, called I Dared to Call Him Father. And it talks about her conversion to Christianity and what a radical thing it is to be able to call God our Father. In the New Testament, we read about God as Father, but it's very rare even to find that in the Old Testament. Jesus brings the fatherhood of God to the fore without in any way diminishing his deity. When Jesus became a man, he was adding humanity to his deity. He wasn't in any way emptying himself of deity. When we learn about him emptying himself, he's emptying himself of his divine prerogatives. So as he lives as a man, he's subjecting himself to do the will of the Father, which is to be a substitute for the sinful man and to live the life that we should have lived under the law and to die the death that we deserve to die under the law, to pay the ransom to redeem legally those who are condemned by the law. Does that make sense? So he humbled himself. And so his humiliation, his voluntary humiliation in no way puts him in an inferior position. He is one with the Father. We have a triune God. I just wanted to make that clear. And it's also emphasized when Jesus is raised from the dead and he appears to Mary. You remember Mary clings to him and, and Jesus says to Mary, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren, so now he's changed. He's calling his disciples brethren. This is new. And say to them, I ascend to my father and your father, my God and your God. Now, he doesn't say, I'm going to our God. I'm going to our father. He's, no, he's distinguishing. He is the unique, eternal son of God. But through what he does on the cross, as our substitute, he reconciles us. To God. So when we believe on the gospel, we are joined to the Lord in a faith union. And we now are seen in Christ. We are clothed with Christ. We are hid with Christ in God. We are identified with Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. You are an in Christ one. And because of this new identification in the eyes of God as one who's been justified 
forgiven, pronounced righteous in Christ, you can now be received, adopted into the family of God, just as if you were born of God's family. So now you are a member of God's family. So because he is the father, he can say, now I'm going to your father. What Jesus did on the cross makes us siblings of Jesus. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. It's a a wonderful truth, but it's all because of him. Our identification with him makes us children of God. Jesus, in his incarnation, took on the role of a subordinate servant to reconcile us to the Father. And we cannot be children of God unless we are reconciled. Those who are reconciled are adopted into God's family by virtue of their union with Christ. And isn't that a comforting thing, to know that whenever God... The Father sees Christ, he sees you. Whenever he sees you, he sees you in Christ. It's a a wonderful truth. How did the Father treat his son while he's on the earth? This gives us insight with the doctrine of suffering. We see that the Father did not spare his son from any trouble. We see in Matthew chapter 4, how Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan himself. Was this because the Father was being cruel or punishing? No, this was the redemptive work that had to be accomplished. Just as Adam, the first man, was tempted by the serpent and there was the fall through the disobedience of humankind, now we see the the, uh, second man, the last Adam. He's going to be redoing the whole course of events. Right from his baptism, he is led to the temptation. And whereas Adam was tempted in the garden and a result of his disobedience, the world was made a wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness so that we could be brought back to the garden. That made sense? So he was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so we see how Jesus was fortified by the word of God in the temptation. And when he defeated Satan, and Satan really could not lure Jesus into disobedience, Satan left him looking for a more opportune time in the Gospel of Luke. But the Gospel of Matthew says, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to what? Minister to him. So he was comforted. The father was comforting the son in the trial with the word and then after the trial by sending angels. And this is our heritage too. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So we see not only the comfort of the Father, but we have the comfort of the Son, the filial comfort, or I call it the brotherly comfort. Jesus speaks about himself being a comforter. Remember, he says in the upper room, I will send another comforter, meaning, and the word another in the Greek is alos, meaning one like me or one of the same kind. 
So he is saying, I'm a comforter, and I'm going to send the Spirit who's a comforter. So we have a comforting team of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because Jesus experienced life on earth with its various afflictions, he understands us and he knows how to comfort us. In chapter 5, verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. That was the role of the priest. And so Jesus becomes the perfect priest. He's the perfect high priest because he can sympathize with our weakness because he became a human being. And yet he can show us how to be victorious in our temptations and our difficulties because he was victorious. And so thanks be to God who gives us the victory. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, that is alos, of the same kind, a helper, a comforter, that he may be with you forever. So throughout the Bible, we we see how God makes himself known as an ever-present help in times of trouble. Now we have spiritual comfort, God the Spirit. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, a comforter, that he may be with you forever. When we read in the book of Acts about the church experiencing great grace, in verse 31 of chapter 9, he says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. So we have the comforting team of the Trinity, the comfort of the Father, compassionate, full of pity and mercy, so ready to receive us, so ready to strengthen us, to go with us into the storm, to go with us into the temptation, to to give us the word that we need, to give us the angelic help that we need. And then we see the comfort of the Son who knows everything about our human experience and is a great high priest. He knows how to intercede for us. He's a wonderful advocate. And then we have the Holy Spirit who never leaves us, never forsakes us. And we can go on as an individual believer and as a church in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Psalm 46, verse 1. So we've looked at the source of comfort, well, what about the scope of our comfort? How far will this comfort go? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, who comforts us in how many of our afflictions? All our affliction. God knows the depth of human suffering. So think about this. The God who created you, the God who created the universe, He became a two-legged, a human being, subject to all kinds of pressure. The word affliction means pressures, pressures of all kinds. The infinitely happy God is the supreme sufferer in the universe. God anticipated the fall 
and ordained the plan of human redemption. We are not worshiping a God who is immune or sheltered from suffering. If you turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 5, what do you see? You see in heaven that they are worshiping a God who suffered. Chapter 5, verse 12, they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Jesus knows the depth of our suffering. The word affliction is philipsis in Greek, and it means pressure. It means tribulation. In this world, you shall have tribulation. That's the word philipsis in John 16, 33. It's the word used for the anguish of childbirth in John 16, 21. It's anything that causes pain or distress, uh, any sorrow, suffering, or heartache imposed by illness, uh, loss, misfortune in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, persecution, trouble. I was just looking. These are the words, thlepsis is used to describe all of these things in the New Testament. The troubles that we have in marriage, in this life, the distress of widowhood, and we can go on and on. We see how God uses these sufferings and he's going to use them redemptively. In Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. We find ourselves learning more about who God is when we're in the valley, when we're in the struggle. Now, does Jesus understand our sufferings? He was familiar with physical suffering, mental suffering, and emotional pain. He was misunderstood by his family. He was brought up in the slums of Nazareth. He had the slander, people saying that he was a bastard. They, there was question as to who was his father. He uh, was misunderstood even by his parents when he was taken at his bar mitzvah to the temple, and he was... Uh, doing his father's business, but misunderstood by his parents who thought that he had gone astray. Uh, His brother did not believe James, who became a leader in the church, contested him. Some of them, at times, they thought that he was mad. Uh, He had frictions with his siblings. The stigma of his being born before Joseph and Mary came together as husband and wife. Uh, He fasted in a desolate wilderness, far from human companionship for 40 days. He was tempted by Satan. His popularity evaporated when he started to make messianic claims. People loved him when he was doing miracles for them, multiplying the the bread and and the fish. But when he said, I am the bread of life, and unless you believe on me, you will perish, people didn't like that. Many went back and were not walking with him anymore. In John chapter 6, verse 66, the religious establishment were against him. They said all kinds of evil against him. They said he was demon-possessed. Uh, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, he is bearing all sorts of burdens with demonic oppression, and he wants his disciples to pray with him, and his disciples go to sleep. 
He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He knew that it would be a cup of excruciating suffering. We get the word excruciating from the cross. As you know, the word cross in Latin is crux. The most important thing, the crux of the matter is the cross. And then excruciating means what comes out of the cross. Excruciating pain. So he's anticipating this, and this is the cup of suffering that only he can bear because he is the God-man. He is the perfect high priest, and he's going to make a perfect sacrifice, an eternal deed. By the eternal spirit, he's going to offer himself up. No human being could do what he is doing. He's doing it as the God-man. He's betrayed by his disciples, uh, wounded in the house of his friends, abandoned, falsely accused, unjustly condemned, subjected to abuse, scorn. He has a mock kangaroo trial, totally illegally abusing justice. He's manhandled, he's mauled, he's beaten, he's blindfolded, he's crowned with thorns, he's arrayed in purple, he's mocked. He's led to the place of the skull to be nailed to a cross. He felt the torment on the cross of heat, flies, thirst, and then eventually as he's being mocked by the rabbis, the dying thieves, and the bloodthirsty rabble, he suffocates. And he, having heard the words, having saved others, can he not save himself? He tastes the dregs of the cup in full by dying. He pays the ransom. Does he know what suffering is like? Johnny Erickson Tata, as you know, when she as a teenage girl, dove into the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, As the tide went out, she didn't check the depth. She ended up breaking her neck in that dive and became a quadriplegic. It was a very difficult time because she was uh, a real uh, go-getter. She was a champion equestrian. She was also like a beauty queen and a, a student leader. And now here she is in the hospital told that she's never going to walk again. She can't move her limbs. She's on a striker frame. And so all of her dreams are evaporated, and she's just there, immobilized, and she's facing the floor, and she can't move. And then she realizes there's only one other person who can understand me now. There's only one person who can understand me being pinned down like this, Jesus on the cross, the striker frame of the cross. He understands my suffering and he can comfort me. So there she was comforted and, as you know, converted. And we, uh, I was just, I did a podcast for Bright Lights this week, uh, Morningstar Bright Lights, and they, they had done a, a big thing on the artwork of Johnny Erickson Tata, who paints with a brush, as you know, wonderful artwork, but she just does it. She can't move anything in her body, but her mouth, she can paint. And uh, she has said many times when people pity her, she says, it's far better for me to be in this wheelchair with him than on my feet without him. She was comforted in her sufferings by the Son of God, the suffering servant. He is with us in our sufferings. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and what? Afflicted. There we have it again. So not only do we have the scope of all afflictions, who comforts us in all our afflictions, but he, we have his strength. He is able to comfort us in all our afflictions. Romans chapter 8, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, another word for affliction, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including myself, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is able. And then there's the significance of our comfort. There's a purpose for all of our sufferings, that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's a significance to our sufferings. The Apostle Paul speaks about a certain kind of suffering that Christians have that no one else has. We have, we have the sufferings that other people will have in life so that we can identify with them, but they're unique sufferings. One of them is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And we might ask, what was lacking in Christ's affliction? Didn't he suffer enough on the cross to pay for all our sin? Yes, he did. It was a perfect atoning sacrifice. But there is something that he did not suffer which we as members of the body must suffer. And that is the mockery, the unbelief of this world. He was not in the 21st century taking the ridicule of the religious leaders. It was in the first, it was in the first century that he had that. And there are people, religious leaders, who will mock Jesus today. We will take that. And we need to be ready for it. There'll be people who will abuse and take the name of Jesus in vain, how about? Have you ever heard that? We, we are in a society that hates Jesus. They, don't, they won't, won't come out and say it, but they say it when they come out with profanity. So this is what we will suffer. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 says, we have fellowship with the Lord in his sufferings being conformed to his death. They're unique kind of sufferings that we have as sons and daughters of God who've been reconciled. We identify with Christ in this world and there will be a a pushback from Satan and from the unbelieving world. So he's going to use our our sufferings in these ways. He uses his comfort in afflictions to bring a greater revelation of himself to you. Secondly, he uses them to do a work in you. 
We'll learn more about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We don't get discouraged. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is what? Being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I hope you're getting that. Don't waste your sorrows. That was the title of a book by Paul Bilheimer. Uh, talked about the redemptive work of God in us when we are going through things. Now, there are sometimes you, you see people, they're going through tough times, and you look from the outside and you kind of pity them, saying, oh boy, that's having a rough time. Then you get up close to them and you talk to them and you say, there's a holiness there. I was talking to a mother who lost her son and what a grief that she had when she lost her son. But then you see the work that the Lord has done in her. She is advanced in her knowledge of Christ in her reliance on him and exudes the presence of him in a way that was far more than when before she had that suffering in her life. Now, I'm not saying we should be a a glutton for punishment, that we should be looking for trials, but I'm just saying we need to recognize that in our trials, the God of all comfort is revealing himself to us, and then he wants to do a work in us, and thirdly, he wants to do a work through you for others, bringing encouragement to others. And so you go to a person who you, you realize is suffering loss or is suffering uh, pressures, and you go to them and you feel refreshed. You feel comforted because of the way that God has manifested his comfort to them. Have you ever done, done that? You visit someone in the hospital and you find out, you come out, you're so encouraged because of the way their spirit is responding to God. There's a correspondence between the comfort we receive from God and that which we are able to minister to others. And then fourthly, there's a significance of our comfort in that the Lord is bringing us together. When you are suffering, you look for other Christians. Now, the temptation is, and this is the the devil and it's the flesh, that sometimes when you're suffering, you want to go alone. You you, you, know, you want to have a little time with just yourself and be private or, or go off. This is the time that you should be driven to Christians. You should come to the community because trials are designed by God to make the church a comforted, comforting community. And when we go through trials, we need to come together and we will know the comfort and we will minister the comfort to others. And you know what? The comfort we receive is sufficient. You don't need to go looking for anything else. Drugs, you don't need you know, uh, pornography to comfort you. You don't need to have travel lust or, or just bucket lists to, to satisfy your soul. You've got God, the God of all comfort. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours, what does it say? In abundance. Do you get that? That's a fact. That's not a you know, a Hallmark card kind of thing. This is a fact. God is able 
to comfort you in all affliction. He's strong enough, and this is sufficient. And our comfort also is abundant through Christ. When you come together as members of the body in a local church, there is sufficient comfort. So abundant that we need not look elsewhere. And then finally, the sanctifying effect of his comfort. It changes us. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. There's a a sanctifying. Now, that word salvation there isn't that you suffer in order to get saved. No, it's that in the afflictions, you find yourself being sanctified. That's the progressive word for salvation. So that you're becoming, you are becoming what God has already made you to be positionally. You are being made in your experience what he's already made you to be in your position. Is that clear? And so you are changed. You're changed. Like A.B. Simpson, you know, who started the uh, Christian Missionary and Alliance thing. He, he was a a man who had served the Lord, started many churches, but then he had a revelation in his sufferings. He'd been used of God, prayed for the sick, saw many people healed, but then he himself got sick and didn't get healed. But he learned a truth, that Christ was his life, that his life was hid with Christ in God. And so he wrote a, a, a hymn called Himself, because he realized that, that everything he needed was found in Christ He was in Christ, and Christ was in him, and that was enough. It was a sanctifying effect. It changed him. So he wrote it this way. He says, once it was a blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was a feeling, now it is his word. Once it was gifts I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now himself alone. All in all forever of Jesus I will sing. Everything is Jesus and Jesus is everything. Once was painful trying, now it is perfect trust. Once a half salvation, now the uttermost. Once was ceaseless holding, now he holds me fast. Once was constant drifting, now my anchors cast. Once was painful trying, once was busy planning, Now it's trustful prayer. Once was anxious caring. Now he has the care. Once it was power I wanted. Now the mighty one. Once for self I labored. Now for him alone. Once it was my working, his it hence shall be. Once I wanted to use him, now he uses me. I love it. And then he went on to say, he says, once I hoped in Jesus, now I know he's mine. Once my lamps were dimly shining, now they brightly shine. He says, once for death I waited, now his coming hail, and my hopes are anchored safe within the veil. He was changed. He says, once I was this way, now I'm this way. And it's all because I've discovered something in the valley. Himself. All in all forever. Of Jesus I will sing. Everything is Jesus. And Jesus is everything. He's my comfort. 
an ever-present help in times of trouble. He fortifies me. When I am weak, he is strong. When I am confused, he is my wisdom. When no one else understands me, he knows my heart and my mind. He has justified me before a holy God. I can rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you again that you have made yourself known as the Father of mercies and how we love your mercies, that you have made yourself known as a God of all comfort. And Lord, we want to know you more. We thank you for the good times, and we thank you that even in the times in this Genesis-free world, through many dangers, toils, and snares, that you show us your amazing grace and you bring us through the storms. And we thank you that even in the storm, we can have peace because we know we're being changed and that we know that we're knowing you and by your grace, we can be making you known even in the valley, even in the storm, even in the darkness. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.